Okay, well, the first thing to say is thank you so much for coming. This is about double the size of the audience I was expecting. So you're extremely welcome. Just, just feel free to, you know, be part of it. So yes, I, I'm a, a singer and folk musician. I, I've done texto, um, but I also, for last year, have been running a podcast, which is all about uh, traditional music and the sometimes weird and unusual stories that sit behind it. So today you can expect songs, got lots of songs, got some tunes, got some stories, some tall tales, a little bit of poetry, um, a bit of joining in if you want to. So if there's a chorus and you feel like joining in, join in. Um, and there's other bits and pieces as well. At one point I will play a jig. Please dance. <laughs> uh, if you don't want to dance, clap, stomp, whatever you would like to do. So uh, it's, it's a parti participative show. Um, but we're going to start with uh, something very, very old. So the first song I'm going to talk about, it's got some brilliant stories, um, but it's based on a story that's 850 years old, which is coincidentally the same age as the original church that was on the site as I was doing a bit of research. So I thought, well, let's do a little song from that era to get us in a medieval mood. Um, and I've got a, a very, it's very short, it's less than a minute long. It's a song to St Nicholas, and we're in St Nicholas's church, so what could be more perfect? Now, you might know that in medieval times they didn't have harmony in the same way that we do now, they had drones. So if you'd like to, you can be a drone for this song while <laughs> well, I sing it. And as, as I say, it's a short song, so you only have to do this for less than a minute, but if you're up for it, it's here. So. Okay, so if you'd like to give me a drone. And then if you really feel sassy, you can go into the fifth, which is. Three people, as you might guess. Uh, the first of which is a king, King Henry II, who is not a very well-known Henry. Um, what do we know about him? He was uh, he was a pretty good king. He wasn't bad. Um, he was uh, a short, stocky character. He was quite scruffy. Um, he, he didn't make a great. Uh, he didn't make a lot of his appearance, and uh, he was quite moody as well. He was brooding and moody, a bit of a Nemo. Um, but he was very popular with the women, and I think being a king probably helped him a little bit there, because otherwise he was quite a remarkable. 
Uh, the second person in the story is his wife. Now, I am a big fan of hers, Eleanor of Appetain. Um, we have, we have a, a daughter called Eleanor, who is named after Eleanor of Appetain, because she is she was just so brilliant. She was, she was already queen when she married Henry. She was much better than him. Um, she ruled over her court in Poitiers, which is the most, was the most cultured court in the whole of Europe. Um, she was a patient for music and art. She was a brilliant military strategist. She was just, in many, many ways, better than Henry. So history has not treated her kindly because she was very, very different from the ideal of um, womanhood in many times, which was to be beautiful and demure and very much like Henry's mistress. Please do come in and sit down. Um, so, Henry's mistress, uh, Fair Rosamond, Rosamond Clifford, even her name is the fairest of the world. Um, and she had a tragic story. Um, she was Henry's mistress, pretty much all we know about her. She was the daughter of a, a knight, uh, and she died young. And since her death, many, many stories have grown up around this sort of romantic story, this doomed love, and this beautiful woman, the evil Queen Eleanor. Um, now I'm going to read you one of the very early ones because it is hilarious. Um, it's from the 14th century and it's an extract from the French Chronicle of London. There will be a song in the um, So, here we go. In this year, the Queen was shamefully hooted and reviled at London Bridge as she was desiring to go from the Tower to Westminster. And this, because she had caused a gentle damsel to be put to death the most beauteous that was known, and imputed to her that she was the queen and the king's concubine. So the queen caused a bath to be prepared, and then made a beauteous damsel enter therein. And forthwith she made a wicked old hag beat this beauteous damsel upon both her arms with a staff. And then, so soon as ever the blood gushed forth, there came another execrable sorceress, and brought two frightful toads upon the trowel and put them on the breasts of the gentle damsel, whereupon they immediately seized her breasts and began to suck. Two of the old hags also held her arms stretched out so that the beauteous damsel might not be able to sink down into the water until all the blood that was in her body had run out. And all the time that the filthy toads were sucking at the breasts of this most beauteous damsel, the queen, laughing the while, mocked her and had great joy in her heart at being thus revenged upon Rosamond. And when she was dead, the queen had the body taken and buried in a filthy ditch, and with the body, the toads. So there we go, death by toad. <laughs> you will never hear that story again. So that, that story did die out, um, because it was too weird, I think, perhaps even for medieval times. But um, the story that did come up was a, a very long ballad. It was 52 verses long. I'm not going to sing it two verses. <laughs> Um, but it tells the whole story of um, Rosamond uh, and Henry and Queen Eleanor. It tells the story of how King Henry built a huge labyrinth under his house at Woodstock, a hundred rooms, and to get to uh, his mistress, you had to sort of follow a silken thread and work your way through the labyrinth. Great way to hide the mistress from your wife. Um, and then when Henry runs away to the wars, as kings used to do, uh, he put one of his knights in charge. The knight uh, was called Sir Thomas. He should have been called Sir Thomas the Useless because the first thing he did is he goes to Eleanor and says, Eleanor, Eleanor, the king's mistress is in his labyrinth. Shall I take him to him, to her? 
Uh, and so he does, and Eleanor poisons the, the uh, poor damsel, the beauteous damsel. Um, but obviously, um, very, very long ballads, but 52 verses uh, are not popular these days. But what has survived to us in, in the United States is a, a much, much shorter version which focuses on how Henry and Rosamond got together. So, Rosamond's brother, young Clifford, was with two of his mates riding across Salisbury Plain and they were bragging or telling brag, bragging tales. Uh, and the thing that he used to brag about in those days, apparently, was how beautiful your sister was. So Clifford's giving it all this about how lovely his sister was and um, King Henry gets to hear about it and thinks, I think I'll have a bit of that. So he invites her to his house. Uh, and she starts to cry because she thinks, well, I could, have, I could have had a normal life, I could have married a lord, I could have had children, now I'm just going to be the king's mistress. And so that's the, the part of the song that we have left to us. to sort of early 19th century and we're in the countryside 
It's beautiful, it's springtime, it's early in the spring and it's early in the morning. And a ploughboy gets up, he goes out to the fields to do his work. And just as the sun dips across the horizon, a bird rises up from the fields into the sky, sort of trilling, dripping all these beautiful notes of songs it does. And it's, of course, the lark, um, the most poetic and the, the most musical of birds. I did an entire podcast episode just about songs and stories and poems about the larks because there are so many of them. And uh, the idea of the lark is the, the bringer of the day, the messenger of the day, and the bringer of summer. Uh, as well, goes back along, it goes right back to at least to Chaucer. So in the Knight's Tale, he says, um, The base enough, the messenger of the day, sound in here, song, Norway grey, and fiery Phoebus rises up so bright that all the audience laugh at the lake. So the sun, the sun coming up uh, with the lark's song. Um, another poet, uh, George Meredith, uh, wrote uh, quite a long poem, I'm going to read a tiny bit of it, but quite a long poem called The Lark Ascending, just about the, the trill of the lark's song, and of course it uh, inspired Vaughan Williams to write his very famous The Lark Ascending. He rises and begins to round, he drops the silver chain of sound of many links without a break, in chirrup, whistles, slur and shake, all interwolved and spreading wide like water dimples down a tide, where ripple, ripple over curls and eddy into eddy whirls. Oppressive hurried notes that run so fleet they scarce are more than one, yet changingly the trills repeat and linger, ringing while they fleet. So that was, that was a little bit of Vaughan Williams, and that was the jig, um, The Lark in the Morning, which of course is also a song. Um, so actually, before I sing you it, I'm going to read you something. So, 
Um, I found when I was doing my Lark episode, I found the most beautiful letter about how Cecil Sharp came to collect the song, um, The Lark in the Morning, which I'm going to read to you and then I'm going to sing you a version of the song. So, December 23rd, 1931. Dear Sir, I noticed in the Times of October the 9th last that you asked for any memories of the late Cecil Sharp on those who knew him as you were writing his life. The only time I saw him was about 20 years ago when he came to Luton and gave a delightful lecture on folk songs at the public library. One incident he mentioned has remained in my memory. He told us he'd heard that a very old folk song, which he had not hitherto recorded, was known in an out-of-the-way village in some corner of England. He accordingly rushed off to secure it before it had died away. On arriving at the place, he was told that there was only one person left who knew it, and this was an aged woman. On arriving at her cottage, he found she'd gone to work in the fields, and after much difficulty, he discovered her engaged in gathering stones into the land. The day was bleak. There was a cutting wind, and the outlook seemed sad as well as unpromising. But when the old woman heard Cecil Sharp's inquiry, the scene changed. She replied that she knew the song. Shall I sing it to you, she said, and raising her old weather-worn face to his and taking the lapels of his coat in her hands and closing her eyes, she sang the ancient song in her quavering yet beautiful voice while he rapidly made notes. As I was walking one morning in spring, which seemed to live again as he spoke to us, remain unforgettable. Yours truly, G. Henry Latchmore. So, that's a little bit of background. Now, I'm going to sing you a different version of the song, which was collected in Essex by John Williams. And if you are a fan of Steel Ice fan at all, you might actually know this version, and you can join in if you want.
because we've got one last song. Oh, perfect. Oh, we can take our time in this one. So this is, this is a song I absolutely love. It's the most collected song in the English-speaking world. It's, there's oh, well over 100 versions. In fact, there's probably over 100 versions just in the United States. And to introduce this song, I'm going to uh, introduce you to a proper character who I'm sure you've heard of, Samuel Pepys. Samuel Pepys of Great Fire of London fame. You probably also know him as a bit of a naughty man. That's going to come out in this little extra. Um, so, about nine months before the Great Fire of London, Samuel Pepys was at a party. He'd had a party in his house um, for the new year, and he'd invited along a new friend of his called Mrs. Nip, Elizabeth Nip. She was an actress, which in itself was a bit of a sensation because theatre had only just come back after Cromwell's time, um, and women were allowed to act on the stage, which was terribly scandalous. So uh, you had all these new actresses going around being, you know, all independent and strong and terrifying. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there was quite a lot of thought that they were probably no better than they should have been. Um, but Samuel really liked Mrs. Nip. So let me tell you what he wrote. So he was talking about the party and all the company that were there, and he said, but above all, my dear Mrs. Nip, with whom I sang, an imperfect pleasure was I to hear her sing, and especially a little Scotch song of Barbary Allen. Now this is the version that she would have sung. In Scarlet Town, where I was bound, there was a Against my will, I took leave, but before I come to my office longing for more of her company, I returned and I met them coming home in the coaches. So, I got in the coach where Mrs. Nip was, and I got her upon my knee, the coach being full, and I played with her breasts and I sang, and at last set her to her house and so good night. So, uh, naughty Mr. Peeps, um, but that's the first record we have at all of the song. Um, so it's obviously in circulation then, we don't know if it was a traditional song, we don't know if it was a theatre song, because there were not theatre songs then. Um, but it, then it just ran amok across the whole of, particularly England and Scotland. Scotland developed its own version with a bit of weird stuff going on in it. Um, and then at some point it crossed the Atlantic and it went to America. So it probably did that quite early, um, almost certainly in colonial times. And it found its way up to the southern Appalachian Mountains, to um, Kentucky, to uh, the Carolinas, um, which was very remote, very cut off. So it sort of stayed there for about 100 years or so, just fermenting in this amazing musical culture that developed uh, in the Appalachians. Um, and it was rediscovered. So we had our own very polite, nice version of Barbara Allen School Scarlet Town, where I was born, there was a fairy um, They went off in a different direction with that, and it was rediscovered by a lady called Olive Dane Campbell. Now, she'd gone out to the region, she was an educator. She'd gone out with her husband, um, John, 
and they were, they've been sent to reform the school system in the Southern Appalachians. Um, now, fair play to them, they went with an open mind and they went to appreciate and understand the culture that was there already and build on that rather than just saying, here's our town ways and this is how you're going to learn. And the first time they were there, um, there was a party and people were doing what they used to do in, in that region, which was to sing songs. And one of the children stood up and sang a song and uh, Olive was immediately struck by it. It was only part way through that she realised that she knew the song, that it was a version of Barbara Allen, but she was so impressed by this, this haunting melody, this different musical culture, that she spent the rest of her life collecting songs and she persuaded Cecil Sharp to come along as well and collect the songs from the region. Because of that, we've got this incredible wealth of amazing songs from that region. So this is the song that started it all off. So before I sing you it, I'm just going to read you a little extract from uh, the folklore's James Ray. It gives you an idea of the power of this ballad. Certainly no one who has ever heard this song sung by women battling their clothes before lonely cabins, or by flat boatmen under the blazing sun on the forks of the Kentucky River can ever forget the profound impression of almost magic melancholy it produces. Oh, my God. 
Thank you. 